Hey, so glad you're here. If you're online with us, welcome as well, 101, 102. Um, we had a great time out there. I thought it was going to be very hot, and I did find out this morning you cannot call yourself a, re- a real preacher until you've preached with bug spray and a sweat towel. <laughs> there. So um, now I guess I'm a real preacher. Hey, um, so we're in a series, King Jesus, and this is week three. If you're just joining us or joining us online for the very First time we're going through Mark's gospel, and this is really the third um, in a sermon trilogy um, where we've been working through this gospel really this entire year. And so we're getting towards the end. But I remember growing up and playing games. And this was back in the day where, and I grew up in Garland, Texas, big city. But within our neighborhood, I was allowed to go anywhere I wanted. And so all hours of the day, we would hop onto our bike and we would head off. And we would play games constantly. And one thing, if you know young kids, one thing that they are is meticulous about their rules. And whatever season we were in is the game that we would be playing at the time. And so during baseball season, we were playing baseball. And basketball season, basketball. Football season, football. Hockey season. We're talking about real sports, never mind. (laughs) Any hockey fans? Sorry. Good. We're in Texas. There we go. Um, But no, we would play sports. And one of the things that's really interesting is where you played the game And who was there determined the rules that you used. For instance, when we played at my house in my backyard, when a runner was running to base, you could peg them with the baseball to get an out. That started to get a little more painful as we got older, but that was one of our rules. But if we went to other people's house, that might not be the rule we used. And if you played by the wrong rules at the other place, you would always get called out. Because we were meticulous. That was how we lived. And who was there and where we were determined what the rules even were. And one of the things as we enter into this section, understand the religious leaders are mad at Jesus Because he is not playing by their rules. He won't play the game the way they want it to be played. And they are furious. And so as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, Jesus walks into this city full of religious leaders and he picks a fight. But the religious leaders are going to fight back. They're going to fight back. And last week we left off In Mark 11, in verse 18, and it said, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And so Jesus confronts this system, and they become angry at him, and they've been angry, but now they start looking for a way to kill him. 
And the question that we're trying to ask during this series is how does Jesus become king? How does he get to the throne? How does he go through this coronation where he takes over and he becomes king over all? And so last week we ended with these three questions. And these questions were so important to where we're going today. And if you weren't here last week, I want to kind of bring you up so you understand because we're going to come back to these questions at the end. And the questions were this, is it possible to make your heart appear better than it is? Is it possible to make your motives more holy than they really are? Is it possible to make your desires appear more pure than they are? In other words, is it possible to look the part of a follower of Jesus but not truly know him? Is it possible to, to spend your days and everyone you know and everyone you come in contact thinks you have it all together? And yet inside, you know that is the furthest thing from the truth. And so this section that we're going to, and it's kind of a long, long section today, but we're going to make it through the long part pretty quickly. I did out there anyway, okay? So here, here's the, the importance, though, of this section. It reveals two things that are super important. One, we see the brilliance of Jesus. We, we see the brilliance of Jesus. And the second thing is this seals Jesus' fate. He's been telling them he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. And it's this section that really seals that fate for Jesus. So then how did we get here? How did we get to a point where Jesus' fate is fixing to be sealed? If you'll remember back, we ended the last series with Jesus on his way somewhere, and then we find out he's on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And last week, he walks into the city with this triumphal entry, and they are celebrating, they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They are celebrating this king being ushered into the city, led into the city. And a week later, he's going to be led out as a failed revolutionary who didn't make it, let out in shame, carrying a cross. And then there was this story, you remember the Markin sandwich of the fig tree and Jesus clearing the temple and then the fig tree. And we look at that story and we decided, okay, Jesus has an anger problem. Jesus is mad. No. The fig tree wasn't about the fig tree at all. The fig tree was really about the temple. Because the fig tree was in full bloom. And the fig tree looked like it should have fruit on it. But the fig tree 
fair. And the problem with the temple is it looked the part. It looked like the place God dwelled. It looked like the place that welcomed people to find the love and embrace of a God who loved them. But it had no fruit. Because the leaves of the tree concealed what was really underneath. It hid its true condition. And so Jesus is ushered in, and now what's fixing to happen is there are five stories that are back to back to back. The four of them, I'm sorry, four of them, go to that slide, that that would help. Um, There are five stories, Mark 11, it's a black slide. There we go, yes. Um, So the first thing, they're going to question Jesus' authority, then Jesus is going to tell a parable about them, then they're going to ask him about paying taxes to Caesar, they're going to ask him about the marriage and resurrection, and then they're going to ask him about the greatest command. And like I said, this section is so important for a couple of reasons, right? right. We see the brilliance of Jesus, but, but more importantly, this seals Jesus' fate. So, jumping in, verse 27, right? Verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priest and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked? And who gave you the authority to do this? So in these stories, and let me just kind of clarify, we're not going to spend all of our time, because typically we do stories like this, we look at Jesus' answers. But today we're going to actually look at the questions they're asking Jesus. And there's a really important reason why. So imagine you live in Dallas, Texas. You work in downtown Dallas. It's 5 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, and everyone is ready to get home. And and you're going to have to use your imagination big time here. Imagine that in this gridlock traffic, someone runs a red light. I know you're in Tyler, Texas, hard to believe someone would actually do that, right? You've never seen that before. Someone runs a red light, and it causes an accident. And this 5 p.m. rush hour traffic in downtown Dallas is now at a standstill. No one can go anywhere. And of course, the police are nowhere in sight. People are honking their horns, they're rolling down their windows, they're yelling things that shouldn't be yelled, and people are angry. And then out of the shadows steps a man, and he walks over to the cars that have been in this accident, and he figures out a way for them to pull into a little alleyway and get their cars out of the way, and then he steps back into the middle of the intersection And he begins to direct traffic. And suddenly the traffic begins to flow smoothly once again. And as traffic gets to a point, you see the lights and the sirens coming for the police 
finally arriving at the scene. And the man thinks my job is done, and he slides on back into the shadows of the building. The police arrive, and right before the man disappears, they find him. And they go up and say, who are you? What are you doing here? Who told you you could go and direct traffic? Who gave you permission, authority to do this? That is the tone of this passage. Jesus walks into the city and he clears the temple and he condemns their system and they come to question him. Who told you you could do this? Who gave you this authority? to speak these words. And immediately, Jesus begins to tell a parable. He he speaks to these people in a parable. And he tells a story of a man who planted a vineyard. And he put a wine press there, and he put a tower, and he planted. And then he gave the field to care for to some farmers. And he went away to another place to live. And when harvest time came, he sent a servant back to reap the harvest. But they beat the servant. They sent him away. And so the man sends another son or another servant, they beat him and send him away. He sends another servant and they kill him. He sends another servant and they beat him and send him away. And then verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and they threw him out in the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? Right? If you want to make these super religious leaders angry, ask them this question when you're talking about the book of Isaiah. Haven't you read what the scriptures say? The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, verse 12. Then the chief priest, And the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against him. They were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. They're looking for a way to kill him. Now they're looking for a way to arrest him because he's just again challenged 
them. He's challenged them. Now, if you remember the story we just told just a moment ago, the police were late, and the man was there. And they began to question. But what they didn't know as they questioned the man was this man had just arrived in town. And he was the new police chief of the city. And no one yet knew his identity. But in reality, he had absolute authority to do exactly what he just did. Jesus comes into the city. He challenges the religious leader with absolute authority to do everything he has just done. And yet, they are questioning and they are concerned out of fear for the system that provides a life for them. And then right after this, another group shows up. Later, they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by what others say. You pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? All right, what were their motives? They're trying to catch him in his words. And they do that with flattery. They do that by telling him, we know you're a great teacher. We know you're brilliant. We know you're smart. We pay taxes to Caesar. And he says, give me a coin. Whose inscription is that? That's Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is. And again, they're turned away. And then in verse 18, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came and asked him a question. Teacher, they say, said, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And then they go to tell this absurd scenario where seven die. And they ask Jesus, these people who don't believe in the resurrection at all, when the resurrection happens, whose wife will she be? They're trying to catch him. What are, what are their motives? What, what's driving everything they do? And then one last one. Verse 28. The teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And of course, we know Jesus is going to go on to say, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the teacher replies, you are correct. In fact, that is more important than all of the burnt offerings, all of the sacrifices you can offer. Jesus says, you're correct. The kingdom of God is closer 
to you than you think. I think if Jesus were to give a next step for this man who knows the right answer, it would simply be now go live like it's true. Live like you believe it. And so these people keep coming to Jesus, questioning everything that he's doing, everything that he's teaching with this intent. But I want you to notice who was at the party. I want to go back really quickly. Look, verse chapter, chapter 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priest the teachers of the law, and that should be yellow too, and the elders came to him. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question about resurrection. And then one more, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. All of the religious leaders are swarming around Jesus. And their intent is not simply to show that he's a false teacher. It is to completely wipe out his influence and his ways because they will lose their seat table. Because they will then feel like they're on the outside looking in. And there's something really revealing about this story for me. I've noticed in my life, I tend to be more concerned with the condition of other people's hearts than I am with mine. I, I tend to focus more on other people's motives and desires than I do what's on what's happening inside. And I think one of the really the, the biggest reasons for that is out of fear of what I might find. If you'll remember back, and I know you all have extensive notes of all of my sermons. I think this would have been week five of the new series, so kind of end of January, start of February, if you want to flip back there, find it on your phone real quick. But we talked about this scene where Jesus is casting out these impure spirits, and the leaders question him. And they go to him and they said that you're doing this because you're possessed by Beelzebub. It's, it's really the spirit of Satan that's allowing you to do this. And Jesus looks at those that are accusing him. Here's what he says. Truly, 
Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. We ask a question that's really important. Is it possible to label the work of the Holy Spirit as unholy? Is it possible to see God at work in our world and say that is not the Spirit of God? And typically, we have a tendency to do that when the person carrying out the action doesn't belong to our group. Jesus did not belong to their group. He wasn't a part of them. And Jesus says, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is an unforgivable sin. Which is kind of scary. But to understand, I think we have to realize there are two spirits that are pervasive and at work in our world. So there is the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is pneuma, spirit, breath, or wind. And Jesus describes that spirit as a counselor, an advocate, a comforter. But there is another spirit that was here in the beginning called Hasatan in Hebrew. The spirit of the Satan. And that spirit is a spirit of accusation. It is an adversary. It is a spirit of blame. As you listen to their questions as you get some insight into their motives for the questions they are asking, we ask, were their questions towards Jesus out of a spirit of advocacy, of being a counselor, of being a comforter to him? Or were they from a spirit of blame and accusation? And one of the things, if you go back and read the story, Jesus responds to their questions with questions. Now, I kind of have this problem in the way that I've always read the Bible, especially the Gospels, because I always looked at these religious leaders as a thorn in Jesus' side who he hated. And the more I've looked, I see the questions that Jesus asked coming out of a spirit of love for them. 
not writing them off, not casting them out, but loving them with difficult questions and truth. And their questions are blaming and accusing him where I see his questions that he is asking as a spirit of advocacy for them. Not that he wants to get them out. Not that he wants to completely rid the system of them. But rather to call the people and the system that claim to be the people of God to actually live as the people of God. To not just look the part of God's people. Not to just simply be a tree that's in full bloom that has no fruit. But to be a place where people are welcomed. Because that was the point of the temple. It was to be this light in the darkness. It was to be this hope where people could come and find the embrace and the love of God the Father. The religious leaders controlled the guest list. They decided who got to come in and who stayed out. And we say, well, Jesus, why is that an unforgivable sin? There's grace, there's mercy. Why is that unforgivable? And if you remember back what, what we said, it's not that God can't redeem it. It's not that God can't welcome that person back. But it's like Back to the Future 3, right? Do you remember this scene? As he's preparing Marty to take the time machine, they're going to steal a locomotive on this track and they're going to push the DeLorean up to 88 miles an hour, but there was a window, or a windmill, excuse me, a windmill, and he had it labeled the point of no return. And it was basically this point where if you decided to bail prior to hitting the windmill, there was still enough time to stop the train before it pushed the locomotive or the DeLorean off the end of the track. It was the place they couldn't come back from. See, I think what Jesus says when he says this unforgivable sin, I think what he's saying is once you reach that point, your heart is in a condition is in a place where there's no chance you will turn it around. And it's dangerous. Because my guess is a lot of us float with, flirt with this point of no return without even realizing. Because we see a lot that is wrong in our world today. Correct? Turn on the news. Turn on social media. 
or the questions we're asking? Are the fingers we're pointing out of a spirit of blame and accusation or out of a spirit of advocacy? See, it's one thing to say abortion is wrong. We are completely against it. It's entirely different to welcome someone who is struggling with that decision. Maybe to welcome someone who's already made that decision that we disagree with. And to still allow this to be a place where they love, are loved, and they see the love that Christ has for them. It, it can be done out of a spirit of love, advocacy, counseling. But it can also be done out of a spirit of blame and accusation out of a spirit that makes people feel they don't belong. Out of a spirit that makes people feel like they are not welcome here. Because we can hide behind the facade. We can look the part. Right? It's a lot easier to look like a follower of Jesus than to actually be one. And Jesus told us that would be the case. It's a lot easier to play the game than to play by Jesus' rules. We wouldn't question their theological precision. But what we do see is they've lost sight of the most important commandment of all. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, not really the second, it's tied to the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for you and I, where does this hit home? For you and I, how do we, 2,000 years later, relate it all to a bunch of guys asking questions because they don't like what Jesus is doing? How do we really look, like we said last week, how do we look at our motives and our desires and really our hearts honestly? in a way that changes it and shapes it to be more like Jesus. I'll give you three things real quickly. First, we invite accountability into our life. We invite other people who are on the journey with us that we're willing to be accountable to. You were never intended to do this by yourself. And if you attempt to, I can promise you, you will fail. 
You have to have other people on the journey with you going the same direction. It is too hard without it. Second, we ask difficult questions of one another. For, for myself, I have a group of five guys that we meet together usually every other week. COVID's kind of messing that up right now. But we ask some really difficult questions of each other every single week. And as I was thinking about how do we offset that mentality and that, that, that really posture of the Pharisees, maybe these questions. I, am I more concerned about how my heart looks or the condition of my heart? Right. Am I more concerned? Go, next one. I don't remember them all. There we go. I'm, am I more concerned about how my desires look or what my heart desires? Refuse, this is number three, refuse to allow fear of what you may find to stop you from being honest. Right, you can invite accountability. You can ask difficult questions. And you can still not be honest. And I think a lot of times it's the fear of what we might find stops us from being honest. Invite accountability. Ask difficult questions. Don't allow fear of what you might find to stop you. The intimacy. Last week we said fig leaves allow you to control what others see. Intimacy with God begins when we lay the fig leaves down. And we allow ourselves to be seen as we learn. Father, today, we pray that your spirit would guide our lives, our hearts, our eyes, that the, that spirit would guide the fingers that we point, that it would guide the questions that we ask. Father, that you would cast out the spirit of blame and accusation, the spirit of the Satan from our life and from our presence. And Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, the spirit of the advocate that is for people. That, that we wouldn't consume our lives with playing a game but, Father, honestly, openly, follow you with all that we are and all that we have. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this day. We pray this in Jesus' name.